Thank you so much, Jason. I am so excited to be here with you today. As Jason mentioned, my wife, Jennifer, who is over here, Jen, say hi. There we go. Yes, my wife, Jennifer, and I have been part of Christ Covenant Church for about two and a half years now. When we first began attending there, uh, we found out there was a really exciting uh, new church plant about to launch, and we felt a bit torn. Should we go with this team that was then forming? Uh, I think our first Sunday visiting together, there was a meeting to try and decide on a name for this church plant. And at that point, Daniel was kind of throwing around a lot of ideas, and we thought this would be a great place for us to go. Turns out, God ended up planting us at Christ Covenant Church, but we have heard wonderful things about the things God is doing here in Rollsville. I've never had the privilege of worshiping here before, and I am really excited to be bringing God's word to us today. So before we get into it too far, would you please pray with me for today's message? Father, it's an enormous privilege to stand before you, uh, to take your word, and to proclaim it. Lord, I pray that we would um, come humbly to your word, that we would submit our lives to it. Um, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us today through the proclamation of your gospel. Same with Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. I feel like there's a little there's a little bit of similarity between what I'm doing today and the Apostle Paul. I don't want to compare myself to the Apostle Paul, but um, Paul had a connection to the church in Philippi. He had gone and he had brought the gospel to Philippi, and God's mission took him elsewhere. But he still felt a strong connection to that church that he had started. Similarly, at Christ Covenant Church, we, try, we remember your church in prayer weekly, and we want to maintain a strong connection with Christ Church Rollsville. Now, Paul felt a, Paul had heard that there was a problem in a church in Philippi. That's really where the connection between, that's where the similarity breaks down. I don't think there's a, there, I'm not coming here today to say that we believe there's a problem at Christ Church Rollsville. That's not the message for today. But Paul had heard that there was a problem with the church in Philippi. They didn't have huge doctrinal divisions. They didn't have any enormous problems going on. But Paul saw that there was a threat. He saw that there was a growing community divide that threatened their witness of the gospel. Imagine with me for just a moment. If you had one thing to say to your children, what would it be? You would probably hit the most important thing in your child's life if you had one message to give to them. In this letter, Paul sees an enormous danger facing the church in Philippi in broken community. And his one word faces that problem head on. Paul gives us one command and then explains how the Philippian church and our church today ought to live out that one command. So to find Paul's command, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look today at verses 27 through 30. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Paul gives his command in verse 27. The ESV reads, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. 
The original language carries an important nuance. A literal translation gives us, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul commands us not only to live worthy lives, but to live as citizens of the gospel. This is important for two reasons. First, it communicated to the people of Philippi. As a Roman colony, proud of their citizen rights under Roman law, the idea of privileges and responsibilities of citizenship would have communicated to the church in Philippi. They knew that being a citizen was special. It set them apart from other cities that didn't have citizenship status. But secondly, it illustrates for us today the change that the gospel makes in us. This gospel proclaims that we are sinners in need of a savior. Without the work of Christ, we are damned in the kingdom of man. Because of Christ, his death and resurrection, our citizenship is transferred. We are no longer merely citizens of this world, but we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. In the time of the Roman Empire, some were born citizens and others had to earn their citizenship. This was a valued legal status, entitling a man to buy, sell, trade, and travel freely under the protection of the emperor. A Roman citizen did not fear harsh treatment because of the power of the empire. Similarly, our heavenly citizenship transforms us entirely. It brings us from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from being objects of God's wrath to being, to being adopted as sons and daughters. Today, we're going to consider first the command to live as citizens, and we'll see four pieces of that citizenship. And then secondly, we'll see the call to suffer as a citizen, and that this suffering is a unique opportunity to display our citizenship. So we need to start today by examining Paul's command to live as citizens. And Paul starts off this citizenship by telling us that there is one spirit that binds the church into a common body. Look with me in verse 27. Paul longs to hear that the Philippians are standing firm in one spirit. Now, we might be tempted to understand this as one culture or one personality that characterizes the Philippian church. We use this kind of language of spirit today pretty commonly. Uh, earlier, I was talking to Dave about his love of the Red Sox. There's a certain spirit that characterizes the Red Sox team versus a spirit of the Yankees team. Um, we could say that there's a corporate culture, a spirit that characterizes UPS or Walmart. We use that kind of language of a spirit of an institution pretty regularly today. But in Paul's day, they simply didn't speak that way. That kind of language wasn't used. So instead of being a distinctive feel or a common culture, when Paul says this spirit, he's referring to the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus to his disciples. This is the spirit who reminds us of Christ's teachings who empowers us to live a gospel-centered life, the Spirit who seals our salvation. This Holy Spirit, who is within each member of the church, is who we are to stand firm in. This is a great picture of unity. We are the bricks, united through the Spirit into a wall that stands firm in the face of opposition. So the Spirit of God is our first piece of citizenship as a church. Paul then goes on to give us another description of how, what our citizenship as a church should look like. He tells us that the church should have one mind. This means that we ought to think about the same truths. A common temptation in the early church was to go on to other ideas, things that Paul called foolish myths in his letter to Timothy. Instead of foolish myths, our common corporate communal thinking 
the things we think and speak about together as a corporate body, when we gather together as the church, these things should be on the doctrines of our faith, the work of God and salvation, the truths of Christianity. This idea of one mind is not limiting. The gospel transforms and applies to every aspect of our humanity. What it does, though, is focus our corporate gathering times. When we think about things together as a body, we seek to have one mind transformed by the grace of God. We are trying to think God's thoughts after him. A common mind centered on the things of Christ is is our second piece of citizenship. Now, after being united in one spirit and one mind, Paul thirdly urges the church to focus on one mission. He writes that the Philippians should be striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. Rather than being isolated from the previous two pieces, this third piece of citizenship unifies the spirit of God and the mind of the church into a common mission, the work of the gospel going forward throughout the world. The gospel doesn't just go forth through individuals, but through the corporate working together of the church. When we exemplify the gospel together, as a body, as a church, it witnesses to the truth of God's grace. God doesn't commission commando Christians who live, at, who live boldly in the wilderness on their own. Instead, he made a community, a body united in a single purpose. This is why Christ Covenant Church and Christ Church Rollsville support Stephen Christie Purdue and their ministry in China as church planting missionaries among the Hui people. We sent them out from Christ Covenant Church and we continue to support them as two bodies that are working together to, work, to strive together to advance the gospel. We don't send them out alone, but with all the support that we can muster. And that support sometimes takes financial shape, but it also looks like a Skype, mess, a Skype interview during a Sunday service or sending elders over to China to encourage them or hosting them and being hospitable to them when they come back so that we can encourage them as they are working forth, as they are going forth to support the gospel advancing in the world. Now, they're not just going to China with just evangelistic efforts, however. They're going forth to start a church, another community of grace in a different place. And Lord willing, the church they plant will someday be able to start other churches, carrying the gospel forward through different communities of faith. So this is how the gospel advances, the community of faith striving together. This citizenship that God has called us to is not purposeless. We are tasked with carrying forth the good news of God's salvation. This is our mission as the church, and it is a unifying work. The final piece of our citizenship is sobering. Paul tells us, and not frightened by your opponents. Why is this sobering? Well, the Philippian church faced opposition. Paul doesn't specifically explain what the problem was that the Philippians faced. Given the nature of the town, however, commentators think it's likely that the church was facing pressure to worship Nero, the Roman emperor of the day. Philippi had at least three different temples to different Roman emperors and several different cults worshiping Greek and Roman gods who would supposedly bless the city. Christians most likely faced pressure to engage in normal patriotic practices of the day. The church has always faced opposition because of the nature of our otherworldly citizenship. One author referred to earth as the upside-down kingdom because our fallen nature causes us to live completely oppositely from the way God intends. As citizens of heaven, God is constantly preparing us for our heavenly home.
The more fully we realize and practice our heavenly citizenship in this world, the more we will face opposition because we are out of sync with everything that's around us. The pleasures, motivations, and dreams of this world fail to compare to to the recognition that there is a coming day when God will judge mankind and will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. As we, live out our op- as we live out our citizenship, we face opposition from a lost world in need of a savior. Facing this opposition, though, draws us to our final piece of citizenship, a fearless confidence in God. Because the sovereign God of the universe has redeemed us, we stand confident in our heavenly citizenship. Nothing should shake us, regardless of what persecution comes our way. Whether it's a militant terrorist group or an electoral referendum, we stand firm in our conviction that the gospel is our only hope of salvation. We are not frightened because God has saved us. Now, Our response to opposition communicates two different messages to two very different audiences. The Philippians' faithful walking out of their citizenship, Paul tells us, is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is a rather confusing part that Paul puts into our text today. So to explain it, I want to borrow from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, where he explains that the gospel is a fragrance of death to death to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, the gospel is a fragrance from life to life. The strength of the Philippian church's faith while enduring opposition boldly proclaimed the gospel. To those who were being saved by God, this proclamation is a sign of life. To those who are not being saved, however, the persistent gospel witness is nothing but foolishness. Our endurance in the face of opposition proclaims the truth of the gospel and the power of this salvation. The Apostle Paul illustrated this truth in his first visit to Philippi. After having exorcised a demon from a slave girl, Paul and Silas were chained in prison. Luke records in Acts 16 that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Here's a great picture of standing firm in one mind, one spirit, striving together for the sake of the gospel, and not being frightened by opposition. Here Paul and Silas have only done what they should do. They have proclaimed the gospel, and as a result, they're in prison. But instead of doing what we might assume would be natural and complaining about the fact that they're in jail— Paul and Silas sing praises to God all night long. And note that Luke is careful to point us to the fact that the prisoners around them saw their response. Their hymn singing was a testimony to these prisoners that something is different about Paul and Silas. Well, God didn't leave them in jail for long. He sent an earthquake which freed the prisoners. Paul and Silas, instead of doing what we might expect and seizing the opportunity to run free, trusted God and remained in prison. To see that the, jail, the Philippian jailer arrived, jailer saw that mo- almost all of his prisoners were gone, and thinking the next morning he would face a terrible death, prepared to take his own life. As he's about to plunge the dagger into his stomach, Paul and Silas let them know they were still there, and were able to engage him in a gospel conversation, leading to the salvation of the Philippian jailer and his family. Paul and Silas's faithful witness, endurance of opposition was a breath of life to life, resulting in the salvation of souls. On the flip side, however, faithful gospel witness can also be a message of condemnation. 
The attacks of ISIS on Christian churches in Iraq in recent months confirm Paul's claim that the gospel is a sign of destruction to some. Churches which have worshipped Christ in very difficult circumstances for centuries have now been wiped out by ISIS. They were no threat. They had no political power. What they had was a faithful claim that the gospel is the only hope of salvation. Simply by proclaiming their message and faithfully worshipping Christ each Sunday, they posed a threat which condemned their surrounding Muslim context. The gospel, however, continues to advance faster than ISIS can stamp it out. Three weeks ago, I was at the Nine Marks Conference at Southeastern Seminary, and Pastor Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church asked one of his interns to share his story with us. We learned that he was the son of an Iranian pastor, and as a child growing up, their church actually had a building that they could meet in, in Iran, but in recent years, there's been a greater crackdown as militant Islam has gotten more stronger. And his father's church now meets underground in houses. And yet, as across the Middle East, he told us, as more and more Muslims have seen the Christian response, Christians who go to their deaths proclaiming that Christ is Lord, they've seen the truth of the Christian message. And there have been hundreds of new converts to Christianity because they've seen the faith of Christians to the point of martyrdom. As we live out transformed, heavenly-oriented lives empowered by the Holy Spirit, we bring both life and death to those around us. As they see our hope, as we share the bread of life with our friends and our neighbors, some will reject Christ, others will embrace Him. Our responsibility is to live out our citizenship well. God has called us to be citizens of heaven here on earth and binds us together as a church community through four key pieces of citizenship. As the church, we must share one spirit. We must be of one mind. We must be engaged in one task. And we must stand unafraid in the face of opposition. God gives us a command to live as citizens, but he also gives us a call to suffer as citizens. Paul wrote to a people facing suffering. Nero literally burned burned Christians alive. And Paul called the Philippian church to rightly understand their suffering. Seeing suffering as part of our citizenship, as inherent in the gospel, is vital for our joy. Suffering is a gift from God and allows us to demonstrate our citizenship before a watching world. When we suffer for the gospel, we prove in our response to pain and agony the truth of God's grace. In the remaining verses of our text, Paul explains the origin of our citizenship and the opportunity of suffering. So first, we need to consider that faith is the beginning of our citizenship. In verse 29, Paul tells us something amazing about our faith. He writes, For it has been granted to you that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Our faith is the beginning of our heavenly citizenship, and that faith comes from God. Our faith in Christ, his gospel, our confession and repentance, all of these are the gifts of God. This message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is life itself. This is the message of the gospel. You are separated from God, severed from life, joy, peace, fulfillment by your sin. You can do nothing to fix your sinful heart. In yourself, you hate God. God was not content to leave us in this state, but sent his son to bear the penalty, the death price of our sin. 
Jesus Christ died in our place on a cross 2,000 years ago and resurrected from the dead three days later to prove his conquering of victory and death. When we confess our sins and trust only in him for salvation, God does a work in our hearts. He exchanges our dead, stone hearts for organs which beat with love for him. He writes his law on our hearts and counts us as adopted sons and daughters of God. The ability to believe this gospel, to live it out, comes only through Jesus Christ. This faith is God's mercy to us. Christian, give thanks to God today for the faith to believe the gospel. To those of you who are not Christians, who hear this message and who hear hope, pray that God would awaken your heart, that God would bring a knowledge of your sin and your need for a Savior into your soul. God, however, does not just give us faith. He also grants to us suffering. This suffering is the mark of our citizenship. Paul tells us that we believe in him and we also suffer for his sake. Paul finds great encouragement in knowing suffering is not done by the will of man or comes at the wind of fate, but is an intentional gift from God. Giving us suffering with the power to endure allows us to magnify God in our response to suffering. Part of our citizenship is suffering for his name. Jesus told his disciples, He who acknowledges me before men, him will I acknowledge before my Father in heaven. He who disowns me before men, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Suffering for the gospel is one of the ways we identify with Christ. As we suffer for him, our faith is stretched, our fruit is shown, and our witness is proclaimed. Suffering is a platform that allows us to shout the truth of God's grace to a world that's confounded by our joy in suffering. As Paul sat in prison, he could honestly say that he was content because of the gospel. He endured stonings, shipwrecks, riots, and and rejoiced because each moment of suffering allowed Paul to show the sufficiency of Christ. Now, we must distinguish this kind of suffering. There is God-honoring suffering, and there is suffering which comes from our own foolishness and sin. The Apostle Peter wrote, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Paul is not writing to us, he's commanding us to ignore the consequences for wrongdoing, but instead encouraging us to stand for the gospel. In many countries around the world, suffering for the gospel is normal. In Eastern Europe, under the Soviet Union, pastors were routinely imprisoned for years. Today, in the Middle East and Central Africa, pastors and churches live knowing a terrorist group could interrupt Sunday service at any moment. How will we respond when that suffering comes for us? Will we see that, kind, that level of suffering as a gift, as a privilege, as an opportunity to prove with our bodies and our lives that God's grace, that this gospel is true, as a literal way to demonstrate our heavenly citizenship? Will we be like Stephen, that early deacon who was stoned to death, who just before his death, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, 
I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. When we stand firm in the face of suffering, when we understand that suffering is a gift from God, suffering changes from being an oppressive thing to being an opportunity. Suffering is no unfortunate byproduct of the world, but it is the call of God upon us as citizens to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. How do you suffer? Do you see suffering as a curse or an opportunity to trust God? You will suffer in this life. See this suffering as a gift from God and grow in joy. God calls us as a church to unity, to walk out our citizenship in this gospel together. As a church, we must be of one spirit, one mind, and pursue the mission of God together. We must be fearless. For after all, if God is for us, who can stand against us? We are called to suffer for the kingdom of God, to praise God for his twin gifts of faith and suffering, which proves our faith. May those who come after us speak of us like the writer of Hebrews spoke of the heroes of faith. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead through resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Brothers and sisters, Let us live worthy of this great citizenship which Christ has given us. We have been bought with a price, called out by the grace and blood of Jesus. Let us be of one spirit, one mind, pursuing with all our hearts one mission, fearless in the power of our God. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to a mighty citizenship. You are creating a kingdom of saints from across the ages, across all peoples. Uh, Lord, we look forward to that day when we will stand with the saints throughout time around your throne, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us from our sin to your salvation. We ask for the grace that we might be able to live out this citizenship. Lord, that when we see opposition, simply for praising you, for living out your gospel, that we would see in that opposition the opportunity to love you through our suffering. We ask for this grace in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Tremendous word and, and great 